finish the book of 2 Timothy. We've been in it for about 10 weeks or so, just in time for us to start into our Advent series in Isaiah next week. But as we come to the end of this book, it's not the most cheerful reading. As we saw last week, Paul is reflecting on his own death. And today he's reflecting on his discouragements. And so many have seen this as a kind of a negative ending. Paul is, is an old man. He's about to die. He's, he's kind of discouraged. He's been abandoned. And, and yet, there's so much encouragement in looking at the way that Paul processes his own death and his own discouragement. Last week, I shared with you two lines from a, a great poem, a long poem written in the 1800s called A Cluster of Quiet Thoughts. Uh, by Frederick Langbridge. And he wrote this in the late 1800s about two men who were in a jail cell. There's a whole story there. But two men are in jail and they're looking at each other or they're looking across from each other. And then we get these two lines. Two men looked through the bars. One saw the mud, the other the stars. Beautifully put. (laughs) Two men in the exact same situation, yet one is clearly looking down, one is looking up. And we saw that the Apostle Paul is literally looking through the bars. He's in prison. He's in what's called the Mamertine prison, and he is in a desperate place and at the end of his life. That as we saw last week, even looking at his own death, it's like he's looking to the stars. He's seeing what God is doing. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And so even in death, He is looking to the Lord, and today I want us to see how he's looking to the Lord in his final discouragements, those things that are discouraging him in his time of life. Let's read these verses, beginning in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense... No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends his greetings to you, as does Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's been a very discouraging season, and by that I mean for Nebraska Cornhusker fans. Pretty bad. I know I'm not alone in this. I am a, a UNL alum. I actually had some folks from Nebraska in the first service, and um, 
don't do a lot of sports references here, but there comes a time when you need to talk about it, right? And it's been very discouraging. Our record stands this week uh, after yesterday's loss, three wins, eight losses, and it is Coach Scott Frost's fourth losing season as a head coach. Before we had Coach Frost, we fired a guy who was the head coach who had a 19-19 and record, just as many wins as losses. And while it seemed terrible at the time, that seems absolutely glorious um, to what we have now. Before that, we had a coach that we also fired who had 54 wins and 24 losses. We're moving in the wrong direction here. Three 10-win seasons. And so right now, Scott Frost's current record is 15 and 27, the worst winning record in any Nebraska history. And yet, and I support this, Scott Frost will be the head coach next year for a fifth season. How is that possible? The answer to that is support. He has support. The athletic director this week gave his support to Scott Frost for at least one more season. And he did so because there's immense fan support. Everyone wants to give Coach Frost the best possible chance because he's a Nebraska native. He's a hometown hero. He was a national championship winning quarterback at Nebraska in the late 90s. And so when he came back as a coach, he was received as a hero. And no one wants to give up on that dream, including me. But as we know with football, and any fans, even the best fans in college football, undeniably, support has a limit when it comes to coaching. And it is decreasing. But in a hard season, that's all you have. It's that hope. It's that dream. It's the belief that things will turn around. I want to talk about support this morning. The support that we need specifically through hard seasons of our lives. And I think that it is an underrated virtue. I think we underrate support all the time. We don't often recognize how important support is to us until it is taken away from us. Think about a friend who is supporting you during a hard season. And oftentimes we don't see the way that they helped us unless it's in retrospect, unless we're looking back and seeing what they did for us and how important it was. Think about the support of a parent even an imperfect parent who maybe we don't realize their support until they're gone from us. Think about a church. We haven't really realized the level of support that we got at a church until we move away and then we see it in retrospect. What is our support in the Christian life? What, what does that mean and how do we how do we have it in, in hard seasons? Because every single one of us has gone through or is going through something extremely hard. Most of us have something like that going on. I know many of you specifically, and I know what your struggles are. And here's how I think that we oftentimes um, give ourselves false support. During those hard seasons, what we'll often do is we'll often say something like, well, this is just a season that I'm going through. 
This will end soon. Once we get to the other side of this, once we get through this week, once we get through this month, once we get through this move, once we get through this transition of job, then once we get to the other side, things will be better. Now, that often does happen. But here's the hard part about that, and just being honest, you can't guarantee that. What if the hardship that you're experiencing is the beginning? What if it's an illness that will be with you for the rest of your life? What if it's a relationship that never fully gets restored? What if the hard thing you're going through is very hard now, but it is actually a preparation for something harder? You see, not to be the fly in the ointment this morning, but Paul is very realistic about this. The Scriptures and Christian faith does not guarantee a deliverance from specific hardship. In fact, it guarantees that for the rest of our lives we will have specific hardships, things that will feel hard to go through. And for Paul, this is the end of the road. I mean, he knows that he's going to die. He knows that he's going to be executed. He's not looking at a season beyond this in this life where he is suddenly going to be okay, where it's just hard for a little while because he's in prison, but eventually he'll get out. He knows this is the end of the road. And whatever time left he has, he's going to be in prison. He's going to be in court. He's going to be defending himself. And he feels abandoned by his friends. And there's all these things going on. But in the midst of that... While naming those discouragements, there is a resiliency to his faith. And I want us to model that resiliency. Here's what I want us to see today. We gain resiliency in our faith when we use our discouragements to discover God's supporting gifts. We gain that resiliency, that grit that Paul has here at the end of his life. We gain that. When we use our discouragements, we don't deny that they're there. Paul names his discouragements. We don't deny that there are things that are discouraging us. But when we name them, we also seek God's supporting gifts. Because the truth is, God may have us in a hard place. He may have us in a specifically hard place. And it may be preparation for the next hard thing. We have no idea what he is doing in and through the world. And so we we don't have specific deliverance necessarily, but we always, always have his support. There are things that are in place that are always true. There There is comfort and support. And the way that Paul talks about this, he says there's always support for us. We may not recognize the support. We may not sufficiently lean into the support. We may not think that the support is enough at a given time. But it is there. And so I want us to look today at the discouragements that Paul names. And there's three of them he names. There are then the supporting gifts. Both the discouragements and through those, his noticing of God's supporting gifts. So first we see Paul's discouragements. The first discouragement for Paul is that he is in a bad situation. This is often the way that discouragement presents itself. The situation. Paul is in prison. He is looking through the bars. He is actually not looking through bars because this prison didn't have bars. He's underground. This is a prison underneath. 
And he's looking at, he's surrounded by earth. Paul has been in prison before, but Paul's prison previously was house arrest in Rome. He had writing tools. He had a servant next to him. He just had somebody chained next to him who helped deliver his letters. He was in a comfortable place. He was a Roman citizen. He was recognized. It was prison, but it was a different kind of prison. That's not where he is now. He's underground. He's cold. He's bored. He's feeling useless. He's feeling lonely. And he is having to constantly defend himself legally alone. So his situation is a discouragement. Secondly, there's abandonment. This is really his main discouragement if you read through these verses. Look at verse 9 and following with me. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Paul is feeling deserted. He's feeling abandoned. And there's different reasons that the levels of loneliness are, are, are twofold, really. First, there's, there's the kind of Demas betrayal, where Demas leaves him. He deserts him. Demas being one of Paul's companions, mentioned in the book of Philemon as a fellow worker with Paul. Mentioned in the book of Colossians as sending his greetings along with Paul's other friends. Demas, being a close companion to Paul, here has fallen in love with the present world and has deserted Paul. There's been some kind of line in the sand that has been drawn, and Demas has left him. Now, some have suggested, perhaps rightly, that Demas is what we call apostate. He, was, he left the faith. He loved the world so much that he left the faith completely, which is certainly possible. It's possible that we can leave the faith because of our love of the world. But we actually don't know that for sure. All we have about Demas is what's written here about his leaving Paul. And so it could be not that he was leaving the faith, but that he was just a bad friend when Paul went underground into prison, Demas said, that's enough for me. He leaves Paul. He loves comfort over truth, or at least comfort over loyalty. And so while it may be true that he left the faith, we don't know that for sure. We don't have enough to condemn Demas, but we do know how it affected Paul. And that's what Paul is saying here, who is crushed, who is discouraged, who is wounded by a friend a fellow worker, someone who he'd worked with for a long time. And we know that the deepest cuts, the deepest wounds, especially those of us who are in ministry, but all of us know that often it comes from our friends, not from our enemies where the hurt comes. Paul feels abandoned. He says so explicitly in verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. The pain of abandonment. Very discouraging for Paul. He's in a bad situation and he's abandoned by his friends. But there's a third discouragement, opposition. Not just friends who leave him, but actual enemies. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed. 
our message. Alexander the coppersmith, that evil guy, we know literally nothing about, (laughs) just that he was a coppersmith and that he opposed Paul. Could be, some think likely, he was the one who got Paul arrested when he came in as a snake, as somebody undercover and listened to Paul's teaching, got the authorities involved and had Paul arrested. And so Paul here is warning Timothy, if you come to me, be careful that Alexander the coppersmith is not in your close circle of influences because he may get you arrested as well. He opposes our message. This is not the discouragement of his situation specifically or of his abandonment, but of him having actual enemies. And so Paul experiences the trifecta of discouragement. I think that we can relate to these things because these specific things are the things that discourage us as well. Some of us are in discouraging situations. We're having a hard time relationally in our families, in our marriages. We're having a hard time at work. We're having a hard time because just the situation, whatever it is, is bad or discouraging. Many of us also know, though, that There's a specific kind of discouragement that comes from loneliness, from feeling like nobody knows what I'm going through, feeling deserted. Those of us who've walked with the Lord for a long time know that there's also enemies in the world, that our faith doesn't stand uncontested. We contend with the world, the flesh, and the devil daily. There is the world, which means the systems of evil and injustice that have plagued this earth, that every institution, every family has a specific kind of dysfunction, every workplace has specific challenges, every leader has shortcomings, and those things all add up to an opposition, the world, the flesh, the enemy within. Enemies are not just out there. It's in my own heart. I wage war against the spiritual battle place of my own soul. Against the old man, Paul says, that still creeps in. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We have an enemy, an adversary who is a being, who has a name. Who brings specific darts of discouragement to our hearts and souls and situations. These are the things that discourage us. One, two, or three, or a combination of them that bring discouragement. Paul does not deny discouragement. He names them. We should not say that the Christian response is just to bury our feelings and not tell people when we're lonely and not tell people when we feel like we're being attacked and not tell people we're in a hard situation. That is our duty to do. He names the specific discouragements. But you need to see that threaded throughout those discouragements are his specific calls to notice the supporting gifts of God. God does not leave him without anything Even though he doesn't promise him that he will be delivered from this specific discouragement, he gives him things along the way, those supporting gifts, and there are three of them, I notice. First, he gives God's people. God's people. Paul knows better than anyone the value of the church. And by that I mean the people of God 
This is familiar to Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul goes to Macedonia, and he is exhausted. He is physically exhausted. He's spiritually exhausted. There's conflict within. There's conflict without in Macedonia. And the Lord sends Titus. And it says in 2 Corinthians 7 that Titus, this man, brought comfort to Paul. But Titus isn't there anymore. He's actually in Dalmatia, we saw in verse 10. Titus is gone, but there are other people on the way. Specifically, he tells Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Timothy, being his, what he calls, beloved son, his adopted son in the Lord, this man that he loves and has taken under his wing and is going to bring this encouragement to Paul. And let's just see in passing here that Paul is not ashamed to pull Timothy out of his specific ministry to come and support him. Some have said Paul seems a little selfish here. Paul knows he's dying. Why does he send Timothy to come be with him, knowing that that will take months out of Timothy's ministry why does he keep telling him to preach the word and to guard the deposit and all the specific commands if he's just going to pull him away from Ephesus? Because that's where Timothy is a pastor. He's at Ephesus. But notice a couple of things. First, Paul doesn't leave Ephesus without support. That's where he's sending Tychicus. Verse 12, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, most likely the one who delivered this letter in the first place. He brings the letter to Timothy and he lets him know Tychicus is going to be here. You can leave. He's going to support you for a while while you come and support me. But secondly, Paul is, is summoning Mark and, and Timothy, and Luke is already there, and he, he's, he's doing a kingdom move here. He's asking for a summit at the Mamertine prison where they can be together and mutually support one another. This is strategic. Paul depended on these types of relationships. That's the point. The sheer number of people that are referenced in this passage, many of whom you've probably never read of before in the Bible, yet they were part of, Mark, uh, part of Paul's support network. Some of them are known. Mark and Luke. Luke is with him. Mark is on the way with Timothy. Look at the other familiar names in verse 19. Maybe familiar if you've read the Bible before. Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Onesphorus. We've already heard of Onesphorus. He's already at the first chapter of 2 Timothy, where Paul says, Onesphorus, the house of Onesphorus, often refreshed me, and they were not ashamed of my chains. This was one support that Paul had that was local. Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila. Who are they? They are the husband and wife power team from, from Corinth. And Paul lived with them for a year and a half. And after that, they traveled with him and supported him in one of his missionary journeys. Erastus, Trophimus, Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. Do you see Paul's network of church support? It's huge. And Paul was a man of the church. He kept in touch with these people. He leaned on them. He knew that God's people are one of his greatest supports. God's people. Secondly, God's provision. He believes that God will provide certain things that will make him comfortable and happy. Things I understand well. Look at verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, 
the parchments, right? I get this. Paul knew the value of a good coat, a warm place to be, and a good book, right? These are God's provisions for him. That's why he wants Timothy to come before winter. Please come before winter. I would like a coat. And whether Timothy did or not, we don't know. More on that later. But either way, God would have provided it in the winter. Bring the parchments above all. What are those parchments? Almost certainly a copy of the Old Testament, Paul's Bible. Maybe copies of early Christian literature, his letters, his copies from the other apostles. Paul recognized the gifts that God has given him, the physical gifts, the spiritual gifts, the relational gifts. And notice how the people of God and the provision of God come together because he sees specific people and he wants specific things from them. Luke alone is with me, he says in verse 11. Luke was a great friend to Paul, but did you also know that he was his doctor? There are multiple occasions in the New Testament where Luke ministers to Paul, stitches him up after his beatings. Luke stays with Paul, not just to be an encouragement, so that he can keep his health up. He asks for Mark in verse 11. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. There's a story there. Mark, one time disgraced and now restored to Paul. Paul went with Mark on his first journeys. But Mark left him. And then when Paul wanted to leave again on another journey, he didn't want Mark with him because he left him before. The tension was so great that it split the great Paul and Barnabas, who were so close and so effective in ministry together. They went their separate ways, one with Timothy, or one with Titus, and one with Mark. And they went on separate journeys. But at some point along the way, since that point, Mark and Paul have made up. They've been restored to each other from this tumultuous relationship. Or at least, if not fully restored as friends, Paul knows that when you need ministry done, you need Mark. He's got to get it done. And so whether they were fully restored or not, we don't know. But he wants Mark at the end. He's useful. He knows it. Now, we don't know, as I said, if they made it. We don't know if Timothy got there before Paul died. But imagine for a second that they did. This power team of Mark, Luke, Paul, Timothy... Luke, the careful, learned doctor, scholar. Mark, the hot-headed but highly effective partner. Paul, the spiritual father. Timothy, the beloved son. Together, they wrote more than half of the New Testament. Can you imagine the support they had for each other? The support that they could give one another. The support that they gave to the early church. This is the kind of support that we need as many of us wrestle with specific discouragement, specific situations, maybe the feeling of loneliness or abandonment, which is so common in our, our own hearts. And sometimes we ask the question, the obvious and good question, how can I get more friends? How can I be less lonely? Which is not a bad question at all. 
But I think what Paul teaches us here is that there's a slightly better question. Who are my supports? See, Paul felt abandoned by his friends, but he knew that he still had support. He looked at his life and his ministry, and he separated things, and he says, I've got Timothy coming for this. I've got Tychicus going there. I've got Luke, who's my doctor. You know, he, he put together his support team for himself. And I think there's something for us to learn there, that we should identify those supports in our lives, even if they're not our best friends, even if there's a time where we're particularly wounded by someone, to identifying who, who has God put in my life? And not only that, but to communicate with them, not just identify with them, but communicate. Paul is able to do this because he's always sending letters. He's always talking to these people. He's always sharing his life. And he stays in communication, and he thanks them, and he sends his greetings. And so he leans on this team of support. The best place for the Christian to find these supports is in the church. And it's just true that if you neglect God's people, that is either the gathered people of God like we're doing right now, or the scattered people of God. The church of God is both gathered in one place and scattered throughout the week with friendships, with small groups, with support groups, with relationships. If you neglect those, those people of God, you neglect God's support. I know the church itself can be a discouragement. It can be the reason or the source of your discouragement. It can be discouraging, it can be boring, it can be difficult, it can be painful. But name one larger group, one large group of people that isn't. Families are also dysfunctional, but they provide support. And any group of sinners will have struggles, power dynamics, hurt, difficulty, past histories. But it will also have support. Paul has every reason in this passage to be burned by the church. They're abandoning him. But even in the midst of that, he sees God's provision and his people, and he finds that support. God's people, God's provision. Third and finally, God's presence. As Paul sits in prison abandoned and opposed. What if these other verses around weren't true? What if he didn't have enough for us? What if Luke had also left? What if Timothy didn't make it? What if Paul didn't have anyone else? Would he still have God's support? Yes, he would. Because he had something that no one can take away from us. God's presence. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord stood by Paul and strengthened him. And that in the end was his greatest comfort. 
As we have said multiple times in this book, Paul's perspective is this, the Christian cannot lose. What if this discouraging situation continues? What if Paul never makes that out of prison? He doesn't. That specific discouragement, he doesn't see that as a losing scenario. He sees it as just the next thing that the Lord is going to rescue him from. I've been in all these places. I've been beaten. I've been, I've been stoned. I have been shipwrecked. In all of these places, God rescued me. He delivered me from the lion's mouth. That's a reference to the book of Daniel. Daniel, the, the great man of God who stood up to Darius, the king of the Medes, and having done so, he was put into a pit of lions, and God sealed their mouths so that they would not attack him. And he says the same thing is true. Everywhere that I've gone, even though I've faced specific discouragements, in each case, God has rescued me. And I know that the biggest rescue is up to come. I'm going to die. And in dying, I will be brought safely, he says, into the kingdom of God. As we saw last week, as he's reflecting on his death, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race. My departure has come that word that means a ship being launched. He says, I'm just moving on to the next thing the Christian can't lose. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It means to move from one rescue to another until the final rescue. And in all those cases, there is always the presence of God. It cannot be taken away. If I'm to be here, I'm with the Lord. If I'm to be there, I'm with the Lord even more so. No matter what, there is no leaving the presence of God. It's His support. He leans not just on the people around Him or what God might specifically provide, which He does provide things, but it's never enough unless we have the presence of the Lord and that He is our strength. You may not have noticed, but this, is, this passage is a beautiful allusion to Psalm 22. Specifically in verses 17 and 18, Paul seems to be praying Psalm 22, taking this psalm and applying it to his own life. Let me show you. Paul says, all have deserted me. Psalm 22 says, why have you forsaken me? Paul says, no one, there's no one to stand beside me. Psalm 22 There is none to help. I was rescued from the lion's mouth, Paul says. Psalm 22, save me from the mouth of the lion. All the Gentiles will hear, Paul says. All the ends of the earth shall remember. Psalm 22. Paul was using the scriptures to interpret his current situation and drawing encouragement from it. Amazing that Paul was so familiar with this book that he was depending on it, the psalmist David, to put words to his situation. And there is a lesson there for us. Paul identified with Psalm 22, but more than that, more than just leaning on the Scripture, he is leaning here on Christ. The Lord stood by me. That's the Lord Christ. And Jesus Christ also quoted Psalm 22 when he was on the cross. My God, my God, 
Why have you forsaken me? So Paul is drawing specific comfort from Jesus here. And he is saying what Jesus said on the cross and realizing that it's not true of him. That there's something different here. For Jesus, the abandonment of God was real. It didn't feel like Jesus was forsaken. He was forsaken. So that Paul and all those who have followed Christ will never be forsaken. So that it can be true that He will never leave us, never forsake us. The only way that that promise is true and God to be true to His character is to abandon His own Son, which He did for our sake. And so my circumstances may feel terrible. It may feel discouraging. And it may be discouraging. And it may feel like abandonment. But in Christ, we actually are never abandoned by God. Paul knows this comfort. Like the words from Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Friends may fail me. Foes assail me. Friends and foes, they're abandonment, opposition. He, my Savior, makes me whole. It is not the specific encouragements that we will always have the right people in place, always have and feel like we have the provision of God, even though He does give His people and He does give His provision often. What He gives us mostly is Himself. And if you have Christ, you are always supported. You were never abandoned by God. There is no specific call here that we will escape from discouragement. We will have discouragements, and one day our lives will end, and it may end in discouragement, even as Paul's did. There is no promise of deliverance from that, but there is the promise of support always. God will give his people He will give specific provisions and He will give Himself His presence specifically in His Son, Jesus Christ. And for all who trust in Him, note that He stands by you and He strengthens you for whatever season you are going through right now. Let's pray. These are not unfamiliar words to us, Father. Friends have failed us. Foes have assailed us. But you, Lord Christ, make us whole. In you there is no abandonment. I pray that you would open us up this morning to your great gifts of support. That even as you are able to hear and bear our disappointments, our discouragements, that we can cast our cares on you because you care for us, that you are able to withstand any kind of negativity or hurt or struggle. And you hear those freely from us, Lord, that even in the midst of those things, we would find your supports, the people that you've put around us your specific gifts, the gift of a conversation, the gift of finances, the gift of a job opening, the gift of whatever it may be, you provide for us, Father. Mostly we thank you for the Son who gives us strength. And as we take of the supper this morning, 
Would you give us that strength? Would you give us yourself so that we can be strong in the discouragements that we face? In Jesus' name, amen.